Before we get started today, I wanted to remind you to download and subscribe to The Low Post with Zach Lowe and The Woj Pod with the great Adrian Wojnarski, available wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to the Hoop Collective Podcast. We talk about the NBA, which we're doing, I'm very happy to say, on Monday afternoon because for the last month we've been doing these after games and so but no games today so that's great news because that means we can be joined from phoenix uh by doris burke who is calling the western conference finals on radio doris thank you so much for joining us oh i'm psyched to be here with you and kirk are you kidding and i'm thankful it's not like 1 a.m in the morning <laughs> yes i think we tried to do that last year uh from the bubble and it was like a technological mess but uh yeah. That's so right. we're all we have no excuse about being, uh, you know, falling asleep at the mic. Um, joining us from Austin, Texas, is Kirk Goldsberry. Hey, Kirk. What is up, guys? It's great to be here with you. So um, our last night, we're recording this on Monday, um, our last night, uh, Doris, we saw in all the basketball I've ever seen, you've seen a little bit more than me. Uh, I've never seen a player pass up an open dunk with three minutes to go in a game, much less a game seven. Um, And I know that it wasn't just about those two points, that there was a lot more going on than that. Um, But I felt like that was a defining moment in that series and the defining moment for the 76ers are. And I'm, you know, 17 hours later or whatever, I'm not really over it. Well, my first reaction to it as I watched in my hotel room here in Phoenix um, was two things. Terribly uncomfortable for a young man in Ben Simmons, who clearly is, is shattered in terms of his confidence on the offensive end. And my second reaction was just what you said. It is a defining moment. And the question I think becomes, does it become a defining moment in the mind of Ben Simmons? Because despite playoff failures, where he wasn't simply good enough in either 18 or 19, gets hurt last year in the bubble, um, he remained defiant. And I would say, and I I use this word carefully, defiant certainly, and with the borderline arrogance that a great athlete needs to have in reactions to questions about whether his game is good enough or whether his game hurts his team. And I throw it back to you, Brian, because, and I'm pleased, I don't want your listeners to think I'm making a direct comparison here. I am not. But LeBron's first finals were the, the San Antonio Spurs refused to guard him. And then the loss to Dallas, where again, his lack of a perimeter game haunted him. This is, this is a fourth year player, right? Just completed his fourth year. Ben is 24 years old. I am not prepared to give up on him. But this should be a defining moment. It may be a defining moment for the Sixers organization. I was certainly surprised uh, that Doc's reaction was not a little bit more tempered. Um, But I guess I would throw it back to you and say as uncomfortable as that was, as brutal as it was to watch for an individual to experience that level of being so unconfident in his abilities, do you think it can propel him forward? And Kirk, I guess I'd ask you the same question. It's I, a, go ahead, it, Ryan. You go Kirk, first. Kirk, I agree, Doris. I, he is too young to determine this. Um, but that was 
a defining moment. And that is a moment that will define his career unless he does something about it, Kirk. I agree. I mean, there's three and a half minutes left in a game seven. It's a tight game. I forget if it was a one-point game or a two-point game at that time. Um, two points. Was- down, two, down two with, uh, with what, 249 to play? 88-86 was the score. That's these, right. These are the exact moments that young players dream about having. Uh, you, you, you catch a ball. Uh, you catch the defense uh, with a chance to dunk it and tie a game like that. Uh, you know, Dora said it perfectly. And I actually support the LeBron comparison, not as a perfect analog, but as a brutal reminder of how young uh, this player is and how we shouldn't shovel dirt on his career just yet. He's not the first 24 year old to not come up in a big moment. And I think LeBron is a perfect example of somebody who sort of righted the ship. Brian, you covered that from 2010, 2011, finally getting it right in 2012 when he took on a bunch of young superstars, uh, including James Harden, who wasn't ready for that moment in 2012. So I think this is part of, if you pardon the pun here, the process of being a young player. uh, But gosh, that seemed like a definitive moment in real time. Just one of those moments they'll be talking about in Philadelphia bars for the next 40 Mm. years. Mm. Everybody will remember it where they were. uh, And that's the moment that Ben Simmons could have sort of, played his way off of the 76ers roster. So I think two- about this as there was just, sorry, Brian, but like game one, two for two in the fourth quarter, game two, zero for zero in the fourth quarter, game three, the last time he took a shot in the fourth quarter, game three in an Eastern conference semi, where the last time this three time all-star two time all defense took a shot was game three. Games four, five, six, and seven, the guy was so uh, in his own head and the game in his own head that he refused to shoot the basketball. And yes, that moment, Brian, was defining, but there were so many moments that, that unfolded last night where I got more and more uncomfortable for the guy. They're in transition, and he doesn't have much space between he and Joel, and they're both at half court, and they've got a little pace. And all he has to do is go behind his back gain a little separation from, from uh, Joel, who if Joel rim runs to the front of the rim, something good is going to happen. But his confidence was at such a low that he passes it to his seven foot, 240 pound center with very little spacing and says, you decide what to do with the ball. And I'm like, oh my God, where <laughs> the hell have we gotten to in terms of where he is mentally, Brian? It, I'm telling you, it was hard to watch. Yeah. So two things I think I'm, I want to bring up about this moment. First off, Joel said after the game that he felt the turning point in the game was when Ben did that. Now I'm not a hundred percent. I sure I agree with that because there was a lot going on, but that was Joel's way of saying that that's not acceptable. And he's right. It's not acceptable. Um, and it's Joel's opportunity this off season to sign um um, a super max extension, a five-year extension. And I, I suspect he will do that. You know, he will um, extend and then they may have to negotiate on, you know, the injury protections and what have you and what's guaranteed and stuff like that. But um, just like when James Harden signed his extension, when Daryl Morey was the team president or GM or whatever his title was in Houston, 
I would expect Joel to have some input uh, and offer his opinion um, uh, to how the organization is going to go. And so that I think is, is one thing that's important. The second thing is Ben actually has an opportunity to do something that I don't think people really realize. Maybe he doesn't even realize it. He has basketball left to play this summer if he wants. He now has to make a decision about whether he's going to play for the Australian national team. Now, by the time this podcast comes out, maybe he'll have announced a decision and maybe he'll wait. And I really hope that he plays because the Australians have huge, huge, huge hopes for uh, this Olympics, even though the American team is going to be loaded, it appears, and getting past them is going to be pretty hard. The Australians have never meddled, and it's a really big deal in Australia. And that team has a bunch of guards on it. Their, their lead point guard is Patty Mills. And I'm guys, I'm here to tell you, when Patty Mills plays for Team Australia, it reminds me of Steve Nash. <laughs> uh, I don't know why he doesn't play like that in the <laughs> NBA, but he's just brilliant. So Ben Simmons, if he plays for Team Australia, will not play point guard, at least not a lot. He will have the opportunity to play off the ball, and I believe even play four or five for Team Australia, the way the international game works. And so I would say that, you Ben, you need to. You know, I don't. Maybe he's injured, and we don't know because he's missed other summers because of injuries. But I would say Ben, go play for Team Australia. Go show the world that this is not who you are. And even if it means improving your value or proving to to Philly that you can be different, um, go take this opportunity to go help your country win a medal. If they were to win a bronze medal, it would, they would be, you know, national heroes there. And I really think he should do that Doris. Um, and uh, I really think it could potentially be the fertile ground where he could pivot off of this. And, uh, you know, maybe it's too fast. Maybe he needs a reflection and, and time to think it over, but um, I, it's something I'm going to be watching very closely to see if he does do that. Well, I mean, if you're the Sixers, would you encourage him to do it? Because if you're thinking about moving him and you give him a window of opportunity to change or to put something else in the minds of the 29 other teams out there who watch the playoffs as well, if you give them something else to see, uh, and as you say, change the narrative on who you are and what you're capable of. Um, but what, you know, where is the trade value? This is something I don't understand as well as you two guys, and, and the salary cap and, putting together a team after preparing for last year's NBA draft, I, I really gained appreciation for how hard it is to put together a team. This guy took one shot in the entire duration of the playoffs, one shot outside the paint. He took 94 of 95 in the paint. The one he didn't was a running three at the end of a quarter. So, you know, he likes to take those because there's no, no pressure on it. You know, where is his trade value is there an organization out there you guys could see that might have some interest at where he fits? I mean, look at his career averages, fifth, just a, literally a tenth of a point off of 16 points, eight boards and 7.7 uh, assists per game. And obviously elite defensively, you know, cross positionally one through four in a pinch strong enough at 6'11 to, to guard the five. I mean, is there a, is there an organization out there and would you get enough value returned? Is there any way you guys see the Sixers standing pat with Daryl Morey as the GM? Is the relationship after what was said by Doc and Joel too fractured? Like what's out there for this guy, do you think? 
Yeah, I think uh, those are all the right questions. And, and, and in a nutshell, Doris, the, the trade value for Ben Simmons has never been lower than it is right now. And this is not the first time we've been talking about trading Ben Simmons. For years, people like myself and analysts around the league have been saying Ben Simmons is a great player, but maybe he just doesn't fit next to Joel Embiid. Maybe these two guys are both so good they need their own sort of ecosystems. But when they share that ecosystem, it's never going to work. This is not the first time. And you'll you can find executives around the league, at least before last night, that said, man, give me a chance to build a team around Ben Simmons, uh, a guy who can play up and down, who's one of the best passing point guards in the league, who's been among the league's leaders in three-point assists for years. As you alluded to, he is a shutdown defender. And you can, you can find executives, at least before last night, that were like, yeah, give me a chance to build a team around Ben Simmons. I think I can spread the floor around him and build a good offense. And sure, man, that's a good start on defense with Ben. Uh, but last night changes the conversation. Now you're talking about a guy who's essentially five-year, $35 million per year player on average. Now you're talking about a guy who, who, who shot three times in the fourth quarter of a seven-game series. Uh, he, he ranked 10th in field goal attempts on the 76ers in the fourth quarter. And of course, the, the punctuation mark, that that passed up dunk, everybody in the league saw that. Everybody's talking about that today. And I think the conversation has changed. Bottom line, there is still some trade value here, uh, pretty good trade value, Brian. But do we really expect him to command what he would have gotten three weeks ago? And will Daryl Morey move off of this player when you're essentially selling him at rock bottom prices right now? So I, I believe that there's a lot of teams that would want Ben Simmons. Uh, as you mentioned, Doris, he can guard one through five. And in today's NBA, that versatility is invaluable. Um, just look what happened with Rudy Gobert, the defensive player of the year. Got played off the court, basically, because he's not versatile. So for that reason, and then he's under contract for five years with no opt-out. So the opportunity, especially for a small, a smaller market team, um, to trade for a guy who's locked in for five years, that's incredibly attractive. The issue, as Kirk said, is what can the Sixers get back? The demand for him would be, would be robust. But when you trade a player of this caliber, um, you, have to get a, you have to get a player or a package back, and it's just it's going to be hard to do. It's going to be hard to do that for Philly. And while you guys were talking, Doris, I – it's so interesting that you brought up LeBron from 2007, the Spurs. Mm -hmm. I went and pulled up his post-game press conference from because yeah. I remember it right after yeah. they lost game four, uh, swept. It was sort of immortalized in some documentaries where Tim Duncan comes off of the podium holding the trophy. Yeah. I remember being in the hallway. He's holding the trophy in one hand, and he sort of shifts it to his other hand and it passes right by LeBron's nose. I mean, it's like <laughs> the trophy is through two inches from LeBron's nose and he, he grabs LeBron and he says into LeBron's ear and it's audible. And, and in the, in the documentaries, something along the lines of this is going to be your league someday, etc. In other words, but it's my league now. I think he later. said, thanks for letting me win this one or something. Uh, is right, that what Brian? he said? Yeah. Okay. Something like that. Well, it ended up being interesting because he, he later played him again and LeBron got him and then Duncan got him back. But here's what LeBron went up to the podium and said right out of the gates. This is his first answer. Uh, you know, I didn't, I don't play well. You know, when, if I don't play well, our team is not going to have a good chance to win. You know, I've got a lot of things to work on to get better for next year. 
I need to definitely get better. And once I get better, our team will automatically get better. I have to do everything that I've done and done well, and then try to improve in order for us to be a better team. Now I would like to read you what Ben Simmons said last night. And I'm picking out a quote from Ben Simmons. I'm not reading his entire remarks, but I, so that was the sentiment that LeBron had, you know, an hour after he got swept out and humbled. He shot 30% in that series. Um, he said, I, this is what Ben Simmons said last night. I am who I am. It is what it is. It's not easy uh, to win. And it showed. Um, and I work. So the first thing I'm going to do is clear my mind and get my mental right. Now let's talk about the play of the week. The pressure to follow up Hypnotic and Cognac weighing heavily on the team. Hypnotic was in the cup, blue and ready for the play. And boom, Onyejo Tequila came in with a smooth assist to Hypnotic's tropical fruit finish. Shaken, strained, poured. It was green and good. The playmaking splash shifted the tempo. Another great cocktail from the Hypnotic team. Every season is Hypnotic and Tequila season. Hypnotic Liquor, Bardstown, Kentucky, 17% alcohol by volume. Hypnotic reminds you to think wisely, drink wisely. Vivid Seats wants you to get to the games you love this spring. Experience every pitch assist and game-winning shot live and in person. And the best part? Each transaction is a step toward a free 11th ticket with Vivid Seat Rewards. Score unbeatable perks like free tickets, surprise seat upgrades, and annual birthday deals. As official ticketing partner of ESPN, Vivid Seats is offering you $20 off your first $200 ticket purchase with code HOOP. That's code HOOP, H-O-O-P. Visit vividseats.com or download the app today. Vivid Seats, experience it live. So here you have, you know, you're making a comparison. There's a bunch of nuance here, but you have LeBron saying, my God, do I got to improve? And you got Ben Simmons saying, I am who I am. And that is really boiling it down to it. But I think Doris, it, it gets to the heart of the matter. And, you know, you've watched him play for four years. You, you know, you kind of know that this is it. And by the way, LeBron and Ben Simmons have a relationship represented by the same agent. And Ben has even, you know, expressed how he's appreciative of getting advice from LeBron. Well, maybe it's time for LeBron to step in with that advice right now. I think humility is a, is an invaluable characteristic for all of us. And I think we can all move off it on occasion. And that's why I brought up that word, sort of that defiant and a little bit of borderline arrogance when Ben's been been in the past. But life is a way of humbling us all. And I think he'll be humbled. I wrote down that exact quote, TNT in their uh, post game with, you know, the guys gave a different quote where he basically said something along the lines of, I have to get better. So again, it goes back to the crux of the matter. And this is something that we do in the NBA. You know, I was a little bit guilty of it in the Utah series in, in, in the game where, where Donovan just tore, tore up the defense. Like, again, I go back to his age. He's 24 years old. Three times we've named this guy an all-star. We've, we've, we've granted him what, what the market value says it is. We've given a 22-year-old or 23-year-old a long contract with a lot of money. And for some guys, that impacts how they think about things. And for some guys, they're pursuing greatness. The money gets set aside and they're pursuing greatness. Ben has a decision to make. He's either going to pursue greatness, which means getting a jump shot, getting a perimeter game. And the biggest mistake I thought he made and continues to make is he stops being aggressive. He's so afraid of being embarrassed, I think, that he's forgetting the value in drawing fouls. 
he's he's forgetting that he's putting the other team in foul trouble or he's putting his team in the early bonus. There's value to a level of aggression. So what? So what? You shoot 50% from the free throw line. As a basketball player, there's value there. And, you know, I, I mean, honestly, guys, I just hurt for the kid. And I hope that this – I hurt for him, and at the same time, I'm annoyed with him. <laughs> so, like, he's got to figure this out because I believe there's more to him than he's shown. But you're going to have – this is all mental. And you, you see it with Giannis, right? Um, but Giannis – Giannis has those irrational threes that probably, you know, drive the staff nuts and you just kind of have to button your lip as his coaching staff and say, well, he's great and we're going to just live with it. Uh, you know, he's going to tell you he's got to catch his rhythm or whatever the hell else Giannis is going to say about the bad shots he takes. You know, Ben has got to be more audacious and somehow get out of his own head and stay aggressive. And I don't care if he shoots 15 air balls you you got to find a way to get past your own mind um, because I I just at 24 years old, I think there's another level, but but he's got to want it. He's got to pay the price and he's got to pay the price physically, mentally with time in the gym. So, yeah. Uh, I, interestingly, the playoffs have a reductive quality. They, they sort of highlight your weaknesses. Um, right. And yeah. Uh, <laughs> You know, both individually and as a team, if your team has a weak link, boy, does it bubble up. And so normally players tend to shrink a little bit in the postseason. Even the best players, their stats tend to level off or even go down. Um, Their minutes go up, so sometimes their totals are higher, but their shooting percentages go down and everything. And then you have like Trey Young and the Hawks. Wow. Where, and I, and I, you know, the way the game ended, I think it's so, um, it's so easy and it's so it, 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 the, the, the eye goes to the Sixers because they're the number one seed and they, they lost in that way. But the Hawks have won five road games in this year, in this postseason already um, to go on the road and win game seven with a bunch of really young players who've most of them never even played in a game seven before. Um, and Trey young has elevated. And in this particular game, you had Kevin Herter because Trey young did not, shoot the ball well five of 23 and then Bogdan Bogdanovich who's a really important player for them has a knee injury and I don't even know what this is going to be going into the Milwaukee series it's a big factor that once the Hawks come down from the high that they're going to have to confront because he wasn't able to finish the game and then Kevin Herter also a third year player just like Trey Young plays what the game of his life in a road (laughs) in a road game seven Um, the Atlanta Hawks are just a tremendous story and a five seed getting to the conference finals uh, with almost no experience, um, just unheard of. And Kirk, I feel like um, this Hawks team, you know, can they, you know, are they legit? They're in the final four. So they're, of course they're serious contenders, but could they do this? They've already stunned us once. Could they keep stunning us? They've stunned me two or three times, Brian. The first time they stunned me was when they were 14 and 20 and essentially in 11th place. They had a coaching change. Uh, and then Nate McMillan, who doesn't get enough attention, uh, is now 27-11 at the end of the regular season, now 8-5 and five in the playoffs, has won two series as the road team in the playoffs, including this last one against arguably the best home team in the Eastern Conference. Um, you know, Nate deserves some shine here. He took over a tough situation and it's not like they're just a five seed. They, they were left for dead. 
Uh, and it's just a remarkable change. So I'm done doubting these guys. That said, I'm taking Milwaukee in this series. But I loved your point about guys who are rising up. Uh, this roster for Trey Young, Bogdanovich, Collins, and Kevin Herter last night. Uh, Kevin Herter is one of the best stories in that regard of these playoffs. He was taking these irrational confidence shots, step back threes, pull-ups against good defenders, and he was making them. Uh, I'm not sure if they would have won that game if it weren't for Kevin Herter. No way. I don't think it's debatable. No way. <laughs> and, and who would have thought we'd be talking about Kevin Herter in a game seven? So it just goes to show you that's why they play the games. I love your point about how some guys shrink in the playoffs. We've already addressed that with one of the players in this series. But on the flip side, Kevin Herter and some of these other guys, Danny Gallinari, Clint Capella, these are guys who prove that they can be good contributing players deep in the NBA playoffs. I don't think they will beat the Milwaukee Bucks, but this team has a bright future and they could beat the Milwaukee Bucks. Kirk, can I follow your point about Nate just because, and, and Brian, forgive me, I know this is your podcast. I saw you react <laughs> too, but I just thought um, in one of the post-game questions by Stephanie Reddy uh, where his first response was about Nate McMillan and the thing that the first words that came out of his mouth, um, I have to give some credit to Nate because he preached toughness with us. And it goes to your ability to finish a game in the crucible of the playoffs when it's possession by possession. And, uh, and I don't, you know, we've all been in Atlanta for games and to see a 22-year-old light a city on fire uh, the way that Trey Young has captivate the imagination it, with his size, his frame, um, he's electric. I can't keep my eyes off him. And I think he might have started one for eight, and yet the game was not swung in the direction it should have been swung in when he was struggling to shoot the basketball. Um so I just wanted to follow on Nate because I think he's done an incredible job and it feels like he's gotten a bad hand uh, on occasion. Um, I agree with you, Kirk. I, I'm picking Milwaukee, right? This is their third conference finals. There's a little bit of a grizzled nature. I still think they're an imperfect team, but the absence of DeAndre Hunter as an option on the defensive wing is problematic. Uh, I think, you know, Drew, who shot the ball terribly in, in, in that last series, will be better. Um, if you ask his contemporaries who the best perimeter defensive player is, it's Drew Holiday. So you have an option against Drew. And and who guards Giannis? You know, like who is – I looked at the numbers. So Solomon Hill got actually the most matchups, 45. Clint got 40. Uh, Okongwu, 25. And Collins, 20. Gallo, 11. So they threw a lot of people at him. Um. I just I like Milwaukee in the series, but you're right. I mean, at this point, if we're doubting, if we're doubting Atlanta, we're making a mistake. Yeah, um, you know it's interesting. Nate McMillan. So maybe he's agreed to a new contract, and they haven't announced it yet. I I don't have any inside knowledge on that. But you know, there's seven open jobs out there. Yep. Um, Free agent Nate McMillan. <laughs> so <laughs> he's under. You know, he's, he, you know he signed an assistant contract and then, you know, they elevated him and I, you know, I'm pretty sure they did not name him head coach. So I think, you know, this reminds me of Ty Lue guys. Um, Ty Lue 
got the Cavs job midway through the season, they announced him as the new head coach, which is a step further than the Hawks did. They said, he's our new head coach going forward, not interim at all. But Ty didn't sign his contract. He agreed to a number, didn't sign his contract. Then the Cavs win the title and Ty comes back and says, yeah, my number has changed. <laughs> and they paid it. And um, so talk about negotiating position that Nate McMillan uh, is going to have um, because the, everybody from top to bottom in the organization is giving him credit. And, and the guy has been a head coach for 20 years on and it's on. It's incredible. Um, and it's amazing how it fit. But, you know, you mentioned earlier that they had a coaching change, Kirk. Doris, I mean, it's when you have a coaching change midseason, it's a low point for your organization. Um, it is not something that you aspire to. And it just goes to show you the outlier nature of this season and the nature of basketball, especially in the NBA, where the seasons are long and the and the games are long and the series are long. Like it's it's never over, you know, and, um, and you know, there was even some people who, you know, behind the scenes were wondering if Travis Schlenk was going to remain in that job long term, to be flat out honest with you. That question was asked to me. Um, by executives in the league, you know, four months ago. Now you look at that team he put together and the moves that he's made, and you say, boy, how can we only finish sixth <laughs> in executive of the year? Um, and that's just, you know, that welcome to the NBA. That That's what happens. Um, you know, I think in this series, uh, you know, with the Bucs, the, the Bucs were an inch away from being home, uh, as in yeah. done, Cancun, done. Uh, with Durant hitting that incredible shot, and it was what was on the line. But now they have all three of their players are healthy, relatively, which is saying something when you look, look across the league. Uh, there are three stars. Their three best players are all healthy. The Hawks can't say that because Bogdan is is banged up. Um, they have they have rest in that they're going to have three days off before Game One. And guess what? They woke up to after the game last night. They have home court advantage and they haven't lost at home in the playoffs. Uh, now the Hawks, I said, are a good road team, but this is the Hawk. This is the Bucks' best opportunity to win a championship since, since I know they made the conference finals uh, back in the early two thousands, but the Lakers were on the other side. This is their best chance to win a championship since, um, since, since uh, Kareem and, and Oscar Robertson and, um, I want to see him seize the day, Doris, because they are imperfect. Giannis is imperfect, but look where they are. They're standing and they're healthy and they got this, they got a great opportunity. Yeah, that's exactly right. And as I said, you know, and we've seen this so many times over the years, it's failure before success. They failed twice in the conference finals and have an opportunity. Um, you know, it's it's been so fascinating to watch Giannis as a player uh, because he too, you know, is so stubborn. And there were times in that series where I thought his shot selection was prideful. And, you know, Jeff Van Gundy has said so many times, um, stupid can get you beat. And as I watched Giannis take some of those shots, guys, my, my thought was pride. Pride too can get you beat. It's not stupidity, it's pride. He, he believes in the work he's done and all of those things. Um, I just think they have too much. I thought Lopez... Um, you know, for stretches in particular, key stretches at the rim, even on drives, meeting people, 
you know, the block he had late where he had to close down toward the box and block Kevin Durant's shot. Um, and I just, you know, listen, Bogdan, uh, what did he have? Four points in game seven, looked like a shell of himself. It's just, I think things are setting up for Milwaukee to, to win this. And, I, you know, the one thing that may hurt them long-term if they get out of this series in advance the absence of Dante DiVincenzo, right? Because he adds to their depth. He's an excellent, instinctive, outstanding defensive player. Um, but yeah, this is their best shot. This is their best shot. Yeah, they are not without injury. DiVincenzo had surgery and is out, but, you know, grand scheme, you know, they're, none of their players are in health and safety protocols and, you know, uh, you know Giannis is healthy and, and will be rested. Two guys drove to work. Neither guy wore a seatbelt. One guy got a ticket. One guy didn't. The same two guys drove home. One guy wore a seatbelt. One guy didn't. One guy made it home. The guy not wearing his seatbelt didn't. Don't risk it. Click it or ticket. Paid for by NHTSA. Okay, to switch over to the series that you're living right now, Doris. Um, uh, again, we talked a little bit earlier about how it's unusual for players to elevate their games in their first postseason. Um, the display that Devin Booker put on um, Sunday afternoon in that game, triple-double, 40-point triple-double in the conference finals, um, absolutely an incredible performance. And if he plays that way, if he's the best player in the series, and I say that knowing that Paul George had another great game, if he can be the best player in the series, whether or not Chris Paul comes back, the Suns are going to have a great chance. I think Doris. Yeah. I thought Devin was electric and Monty Williams said something to us prior to the game, which I thought was telling. He said, Devin Booker believes he's the best player in the league. And he said, and that's just not a prideful brag like literally to his core believes he's the best player in the league. So when he has left off all NBA teams, when he has left off all-star rosters, or maybe it's named, you know, because of an injury that he takes it personally and Kirk, you know, watching him rise to the moment without Chris Paul on the floor um, was something to behold because I thought Chris's competitive toughness permeated this roster. He did not, I thought he would wear on somebody like DeAndre Ayton's personality. DeAndre says nothing but great things about him, Kirk. And I just, what Devin did yesterday was majestic in my mind. Yeah, let me give a shout out to one of our favorite people, Doris. Matt Williams had the stat that I think defined Devin's performance yesterday, Brian, which was the fourth person ever to, to lead both teams in a conference finals game in points, rebounds, and assists, both teams. Uh, and he joins Larry Bird, LeBron James, and I think it was Bill Russell, uh, pretty good players. <clears throat> and, you know, Devin is 24. He's been sort of marooned on bad teams. And I think there's a theme coming out in our discussion, guys. One of the great things of these playoffs is we're seeing some fresh faces rise to the occasion, uh, but we're also seeing player development and like, 
good and bad stories, checking in on players at different times, their arcs. As we mentioned with Giannis, is this the time he finally gets over that hump? Uh, you know, it took, he's still younger than Michael was when Michael got over that conference finals hump. Let's give these guys some time. But Devin appears to be ahead of schedule if game one is any indication. He's still a kid, in my opinion, uh, but he's had so many different coaches. And by the way, as it relates to this series, Monty Williams had some great quotes about his mentor, Nate McMillan, uh, teaching him how to deal with the team. Uh, and Monty's a good friend of mine. He took over this team that was 19 and 63 two years ago. And here we are. They're one game up on the Clippers. So if Devin can do this, if he can be this guy, the Suns are in great shape, not just for this series, but for years to come, probably past when Chris is a member of this team. And that's one thing to look at if you're a Suns fan in game one is like Chris has a sort of a half-life here. This is a great player near the end of his career. He might not be there next year. Regardless, Devin Booker is going to be around for a minute. Uh, so I am very excited to see Devin Booker in game two against this Clippers team. Now, if there's one team that deserves the benefit of the doubt after a tough game one or game two, it's this exact Clippers team. Ty Lu, who we already talked about, another great coach, uh, has a chance to come back from behind in yet another series. So this thing is going to have some twists and turns, but one thing that looks pretty solid is Devin Booker being at least the second best player in the series. Uh, and Phoenix is going to have a chance if he can play anywhere near as well as he did Brian in that first game. So let me tell a quick Devin Booker story. And I've never asked Devin about this story. So maybe, you know, in the game of telephone, I don't have it a hundred percent. Right. So um, but when I heard the story about Devin, it, it informed me a lot about him. I already knew the kind of uh, hard worker that he was, but somebody who's very close to Kobe and anybody who knows, knows there's only a couple of people who were truly very close to Kobe told me this story. Um, you know, Devin idolized Kobe and um, wanted to come work with him after he retired, wanted to come work with him in the off season. And Kobe had a thing where um, he put you through a process if you if he uh, if you want if you, if you want to work with him, he put you through a process. You, even if you were a great player, he wouldn't just invite you in. So first off, apparently, he would never he would never take your first call, and he would never call you back after one call or one text or whatever. So <clears throat> Devin went through that bit of a gauntlet, and he invited him up to the Mamba Academy um, to come work out with him at some point in the off season. And um, when he came to the Mamba Academy, he arrived. Of course, Kobe doesn't come to you right away. Kobe makes you wait. <clears throat> and so uh, Devin came up and was getting ready to work out with Kobe and Kobe was up in his office and um, he was watching. He was just watching Devin out on the court. Devin, um, maybe Devin doesn't even know this story. I'm sure he does, but so Kobe was watching him and Gigi was out there and Devin went and worked out and started playing and talking to and interacting with Gigi. And that was when Kobe decided, okay, this guy is going to be okay by me. And that's kind of who Devin Booker is. He's a worker. He's a worker. Um, his, his, his talent is great, but his skill development is impressive. And he matches with the aesthetic uh, that this Suns team is. Now, these, these guys came after him. Monty Williams and uh, James Jones came after Devin Booker. But if you know James Jones, who just won executive of the year, this is that story I just told is the epitome of James Jones. You know, I covered teams that James Jones were on for seven consecutive years. And I would be 
at the Cleveland Cavaliers practice facility doing a TV thing in mid-July and whose Jeep Wrangler would pull in uh, at 10 a.m. on, you know, July 9th, James Jones, even though he was, you know, the 12th or 13th man on the roster, whose, <laughs> whose car would pull out of the Heat's practice facility last as I was there uh, doing work, James Jones. This is the, he, the man works, works hard in silence. And then Monty Williams, you know, he's a very grounded individual. And I thought, Doris, that Monty had a great game plan in this game, in game one, for DeAndre Ayton. Um, they, they knew they needed to get Booker free. They, you know, and obviously the, the, the Clippers had just been great playing small, playing uh, Rudy Gobert out of his position. And he, he came with a great game plan for DeAndre Ayton to set Booker up with those wide, high pick and rolls that kept freeing up Booker and kept setting up Ayton as the role man. I thought it was a terrific game plan that it was going to be hard for them to game plan. They didn't know who they were going to play. I mean, yes, they had a huge rest advantage, but they didn't know for sure they were playing the Clippers. They only had a day to have a game plan. And so I thought that was remarkable and, and how Ayton – how the chess max works with Aiton and how he can free Booker, I think is going to be the story of this series. Yeah. Well, just to shout out Matthew Williams, who Kirk shouted out because I'd have a hard time getting through my NBA season without Matt, because I was saying to, to Matt this morning, I said, Aiton feels so different to me than Rudy. And I said, I don't know that I can put my finger on exactly what it is, but in that series, right. You could send one body, whether it was Morris or at times Paul George, it was any number of guys, but it was one body they were sending at Rudy Gobert. And whether it's he's not as lively athletically, he doesn't have the base. He's not the like it feels like Aiden is stronger physically, setting screens, rolling to the cup more of a vertical threat consistently. You know, he posts up for just a shade under five times per game. Like you can actually direct enter the ball to the post. Not that they're going to do it consistently, but you can do it. Where Rudy, it was less than one a game. Um, and it, Brian, just talking to people in Phoenix, like Aiton was my question mark. Would he be mature enough um, to, to be in this sort of run and consistent enough, right? They've been searching for consistency from this guy. His talent is there. Um, the answer to that question is yes. He's not, a, he's not my wild card anymore. He's been consistently good. Um, so, yeah, to your point, Kirk and, and Brian, about Monty and the job he's done, and he is grounded and he is humble and he's paid his dues and he's experienced his lumps as a, as a coach. So it's uh, the sons are for real. And just one final point before I throw it back to you guys, the sustainability piece was something Mark Jones said first on the air yesterday, radio wise, he said, this is sustainable and this is sustainable beyond Chris Paul's tenure. Um, and just, you know, listen, is, is Tory Craig going to make the shots he made? I don't know. Um, but Cameron Johnson's going to do all the things Cameron Johnson did yesterday. And Craig will stand up in his stout defensively. There's, there's a lot to like. And, and how that Aiton thing unfolds, I don't know, because the Clippers offensive rating yesterday with Aiton and Booker on the floor 
was 134.8 in the 35 <laughs> minutes. That's pretty good. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah, the Clippers can really punish you with small lineups and shooting. I think they're one of the hottest shooting teams we've ever seen in the playoffs uh, through the last five games. I think they've hit 15 threes and over 40% of, of their threes in each of those last five games. Um, that's in part because they are playing so well on the perimeter, obviously. Um, and Aiton is such a, a big time player. I have to say, just as an interjection, one thing I kept thinking about yesterday was the Luka Doncic uh, draft and how Trey Young and DeAndre Aiton are still playing and Doncic isn't now. I'm not saying that we're going to go redraft and, and not make some changes that year, uh, but it is interesting to note that Aiton appears to be a really solid uh, pick for the Suns in that year, not not the bust uh, that some people were were thinking he might be. So Aiton, if he can stay on the court, uh, they're going to be just fine. He's there if Zubac is playing. Now Zubac played 18 minutes, and Aiton's going to be there in those 18 minutes. So one thing to watch in Game Two is: Are we going to see much of Zubac for the Clippers from their perspective? They have to do the math. Can they get more points? with Zubac and Aiton out there or get more points with no Zubac in a small lineup, even though they're giving up something on the other end of the court. The one thing we've learned about Ty Lue this postseason is he's going to tinker and tinker and tinker, and he uses all seven games to get to the right answer uh, in a way that some <laughs> other coaches this postseason haven't been doing that, uh, including Doc Rivers, including Mike Budenholzer. Ty Lue deserves a lot of credit. Uh, for messing with stuff. He's not going to stick with a bad formula because he's stubborn. So I think we're going to learn a lot in game two about whether DeAndre Ayton is going to be able to stay on the floor in large part by what Ty Lue decides to do with his own rotations, Brian. Speaking of Budenholzer, um, <clears throat> we almost had a colossal, you know, you know, Ben Simmons is wearing the goat horns a little bit right now, but Brooke Lopez got off of the, you know, got off of the schneid. He was in real big trouble because before Durant hits that incredible shot, Lopez, after a timeout. Oh, that was I, so bad. Where I assume, so there's eight seconds left in the game and there's 1.9 on the shot clock, two seconds on the shot clock. I can't imagine that anything in the timeout didn't cover our options for this two-second play. <laughs> I have to imagine every single player on the court knew what was going to happen for this two second play. And, um, but Brian, let me jump in. Who draws up a play for Brooke freaking Lopez with two seconds on the shot well, clock in the I, corner when you have Chris Middleton out there, when you have drew holiday, I know he's having a tough game, but these guys have had the ball in their hands for that exact ATO dozens scores of times throughout their career and we're dumping it to brook in the corner come I mean, on i'd, have to, I'd have to go look at the film to know whether <laughs> i can't believe that was the first option maybe he was but you know in the in the huddle you're going over every option for everybody who gets the ball because there's two seconds and so after the game bud said that was my fault i didn't make i didn't let everybody i didn't and for, reinforce the, re, the the fact that we had a shot clock. And I'm like, well, what were you talking about in the huddle? What could you, I mean, maybe he was just trying to take a bullet there for Brooke, who I have pointed out before. I like Brooke a lot. He did go to Stanford, but he did get suspended when he was at Stanford for skipping classes. So I, I don't know if the Stanford... <laughs> Donovan, Billy Donovan once said to me, I think at the time he was, he was coaching Florida, 
And I think maybe Bud has just taken the bullet because Billy, I remember like sort of a similar failure and execution down the stretch of the game. He goes, listen, he goes, I'm responsible for what happens in the huddle. What transpires from the, the breaking of the huddle and the end of the game sometimes is out of my control. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't didn't know. Brooke didn't know there were two seconds on the clock. Come on. I mean, if that Durant ends up being a three, I mean, not that I Oof. would have expected Lopez to, if he had just turned and shot it, like he can make that shot. But I mean, it was a low percentage chance, but to just give up possession. Oh, um, I mean, I was tweeting that like Steve, Steve Nash had had a couple ATOs there at crunch time too. And the entire basketball planet knew where the ball was going and they got it to Kevin anyway. That's right. So I was, I, and he, Kevin got off his shot. Now Kevin's a little bit better than somebody like Chris or Drew in those moments, but they should at least get a catch for one of these guys who can go create a shot. So I, I'd have to rewatch but, the film. But too. Kirk, even if they pulled an usher out of the crowd and said, you're going to be our fifth on the court. The usher has to know with two seconds he gets it. He's got to throw the ball. To yeah, the that's rim. totally because fair. because even if he misses the shot, if the ball hits off the rim, maybe another two seconds goes off. Even if the Nets get the ball, and it, and you also have the option of you know getting the offensive rebound, which could have happened. The ball could have slipped through a hand and hit a knee and got out of bounds. I don't need to keep analyzing it. I'm just telling you that that <laughs> was the ultimate goat horns. And after the game, I thought it was great. Shaq, who on TNT, you know, when he comes in with that voice can be so great. Um, you know, they're interviewing Chris Middleton on the show and, you know, Chris is very excited and, you know, they're, you know, celebrating the win. And Shaq comes in with like the second question and goes, what happened with Brooke Lopez? <laughs> Shaq, <laughs> even though the, even though the Bucks won this game and a lot of stuff happened after that in overtime, it was like the overtime reminded me of that Cavs uh, Warriors game seven, where nobody scored for like 12 straight possessions before Kyrie's three. Everybody was so exhausted. They just couldn't do it. But (laughs) Shaq couldn't get past because Shaq, even if Shaq had caught the ball side of the three point line with two seconds, Shaq's (laughs) putting the shot up. The question is, would Ben Simmons have put the shot up there? That is the answer we don't know. That's right. Uh, that's All right. right. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Hoop Collective podcast. Thank you to Doris for giving us your time on this off day. Thank you to Kirk as always. Um, Wednesday, we have a live virtual live podcast, um, which we are, we've never done before. Maybe we'll never do it again, but uh, we will do the podcast live. You can watch us. I don't know if that's going to be a good or a bad thing um, at noon Eastern. You have to register for it, but it's free. You can see it on my Twitter account on there. Thank you for listening again. We will talk to you guys on Wednesday at noon.